Each week we've been going through Ephesians. I've asked for um, someone to come and read the passage of the morning for us. And so uh, I've asked Jen Lane to come and share Ephesians 2. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1 to 10. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thanks, Jen. This is one of my favorite passages. Eager to spend some time thinking about it and looking at it this morning. If you've been on uh, social media or even just on the internet, you might have come across something that is, uh, always brings a smile to my face, and that is like these comparison pictures of what I think I look like doing something and what I really look like doing something. Often these, the best ones are like the exercise ones. Uh, yeah, don't take time to look at them now. You can after, after service, but uh, they're fantastic. So often the, what I think I look like is some photoshopped image, some stock photography of some person that is incredibly in shape. And then there's kind of the realistic version. And it always has a way, when I see this, uh, it just kind of humbles me back into reality. I get the sense, yeah, I probably don't, I probably don't look as good as I think I look, uh, even in these fine moments of exercise. There's it's one way of seeing what Paul does in Ephesians 2, especially the first few verses. It's almost as if we have our idea of what we think we look like. And then we, we get reality, kind of hits us in the face. And the first few verses of what Jen just read, I mean, the, the human touch-ups, the Photoshop elements, the filters are removed. We just get the real picture. The real picture, and we can see things for what they really are. And verse 1 starts out with a very, very strong statement. So verse 1 of Ephesians 2, and I hope you keep your Bibles open here, says, you were dead. You were dead. This is a bold statement. It's a strong statement. It's not breathing, not moving, no life spiritually. So while we're living, while we're certainly walking physically, this says we are dead spiritually. It warrants a closer look because like, well, what caused that? I mean, what caused spiritual death in us? This passage begins to walk through the elements that have caused spiritual death inside of us. So, so one of those elements will certainly be the environment 
the spiritual environment of this age. That's what it says in, in verses 1 and 2. So we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which we once walked and we followed the course of this world. The course of this age. The spiritual ecosystem of this age is one that's toxic. It's deadly. We live in an age that is just kind of unbridled when it comes to desires. If it feels good, you do it. By the way, that's not like because we live in North America in 2016. That's because we're human. This is the course of any age that always prompts us to kind of go our own way rather than thinking God has any say in the matter. We follow this. We, we work toward this. We, we take in the spiritual environment of this age, and it's deadly. As a matter of fact, Romans 12 would say, this is exactly like this age is what you're not supposed to be conformed to. But we find ourselves looking more and more like it. And because of that, Paul could say, we were dead. But if, if you keep reading in verse 2, it's not just that we followed the course of this world. It's also that we followed the prince of the power of the air. We, we have a spiritual authority in this age. It's quite ruthless. The devil is, has authority. It's a limited authority, but he's called a prince here. He's the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work among the, the children of disobedience. Uh, Jesus did not mince words when he talked about our spiritual enemy, did he? His head's not in the sand. He says that the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy in John 8. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. So there is this spiritual authority over this world, and it's a limited authority. But he is presently at work. We wonder what's messed up about the world. Well, part of it is this age is bent on destruction. And part of it is there is a spiritual authority that is an evil spiritual authority. So when, when we see the tragedies, when we hear the names even like Sandy Hook and Brussels and, and we think of Boko Haram and we think of these places that are just, everybody can seem to discern this is evil, this is wicked. We know there is a, an evil spiritual authority. And we don't even have to call out names of places far away. So that, that evil one, the prince of the power of the air, is at work certainly in Newark, and is at work in Wilmington, and is at work in Bear, and is at work in Elkton, and Kennett, and anywhere else you want to name. I mean, this is, this is the enemy we face, and there's an environment, a, a spiritual environment, and there's a spiritual authority that is evil. I... It says we walked, we walked kind of following the prince of the power of the air. It's, the word is almost like we march in formation. I, I was thinking back to, yesterday was Armed Forces Day, and I was thinking back to uh, Armed Forces Day in the past when I would go and see my dad in a parade, and so there were just, you know, the lines of soldiers, and there was someone calling out exactly how they were supposed to walk and what formation they were supposed to be in, and they would walk and march, and, and this is the picture. I mean, there's a spiritual authority, Satan, our enemy, and he is calling out how people are supposed to walk, and walking in formation, and this leads to death. Verse 1 is just so interesting. It, it says we, we live in a spiritual environment. We operate with a, a deadly spiritual authority, and because of that, we are dead. And it says we were dead in our trespasses. Look at the words, trespasses and sins. 
we use different terms. I think sometimes we're in danger of trying to help the Holy Spirit with this vocabulary a little bit. Because I would much rather think of all the bad things in my life as a result of a, a lapse in judgment. I would like to think of it as, you know, maybe a momentary lack of discretion. I might like to kind of pawn it off as an unintended mistake. But please, please, don't tell the Holy Spirit what words he can and can't use. He, He inspires Paul to say, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We know what trespass, right? We get the sign, no trespassing. There's there's a boundary and when you cross over it, you're trespassing. And that's exactly God who, God who rules all and God who is all loving. God knows exactly how this world should work, knows how you ought to live in this world, how I ought to live in this world. He's the one that sets those boundaries. And when we cross those, it says we were dead in those trespasses. We crossed boundaries that were for the safety and protection of all of us. Trespasses and sins. The word sin is a little bit different than trespass. So it's, a, it's an act of rebellion that's deeply personal, particularly offending God. So, I mean, we could glamorize being a rebel. I mean, we could glamorize, yeah, nobody tells me what to do. I kind of paint outside the lines. I'm kind of, I, I live by my own rules. And that might seem glamorous for a while. There's a cost, there's a price tag for that. But I don't know anybody that can make betrayals seem attractive. And that's exactly what this word sin means. It means when when we should have had a right relationship with God, we betrayed him. In a deeply personal way. This all contributes to us being dead. It it shows up in our actions in verse 3. It says we we all live this way. So no one gets singled out here. It's, it's all of us. We all lived in, in this way. We, we just carried out the desires of the body, the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our mind. In our actions, we decided, God, I know you have your way of doing things, but I have mine. I'm going to do it my way. And it says we, we carried out even the desires of our mind. Another translation said our we carried out our own rationalization. So we were, we're such, uh, we're so well equipped at being able to rationalize why that's actually not bad, why it's actually not that big of a deal, why it's okay in this particular instance. And when we are willingly engaged in a lifestyle that's against God, this says it's spiritually suicidal. It has the net result of making us dead in our trespasses and sins. Sometimes that's easy to feel. We can read this and go, you know what? I can think of all these bad things that I did. And so probably what all of us have are like 10 worst sins in the world. We we never write those down, but we have them mentally. And when someone does that, we go, they ought to be punished. Who does things like this? Shame on them. And we can say, well, if, if we ever did one of those things that seems like the worst things in the world to do, then we just got to say, well, I see sins and trespasses. But I feel like the Lord has I just kind of pressed in on my heart that it's not so much the, 
the 10 most wicked things that I could think of. That's not just the only category of sins and trespasses, but, but it could be sins and trespasses following the, the course of this world or following the prince of the power there could be as simple as this, just doing life without God. Just thinking we can do life without him. So I don't remember a time when I wasn't in church. So if, if I'm just going off of the 10 worst sins that I think I've ever heard committed, I might be able to kind of take a pass and go, well, this is really good for those, for those people who really need to hear that, about how bad their life was all, all wrecked and, and messed up. But, you know, but then I, I recognize sin is this rebellion in my own heart. It's these moments where I, maybe no one ever knows, but in my mind, I'm prideful. I think I'm just that much better than that other person who just can't quite seem to get their act together. Or I see something that someone else has and I want it to the point of crossing a line of coveting or envy. Or the million ways we are selfish, the million ways we look out for ourselves and we, we kind of throw a tantrum when our needs aren't met, when our way isn't, isn't the one that's actually chosen. And, and we, maybe no one else sees that. We behave really well. We pretend really well. Or that moment where we let injustice fly and we really don't engage it. All these moments where we, where we could excuse and say, well, see, I didn't do the, the biggies. But then God shines in our hearts and says, wait a minute, this is This is us. This is all of us. We all walked this way. It's just as spiritually deadly. To have God be this token piece of your life that shows up for about an hour, 35 times a year when you happen to make it to church. It's just as spiritually deadly. We were dead, all of us. And if that wasn't enough, there's one more place where this presses in, not just the environment or the spiritual authority, but our spiritual nature. Our spiritual nature is deserving of wrath. That's what, that's what strikes us in verse 3. I mean, I could write off, well, I just live in an environment or the devil made me do it and, and all those sound okay. But now it, it comes in a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? It says, our nature, we were by nature children of wrath. A question that comes up regularly in the Bible is, whose child are you? Are you a son of God? I mean, even Ephesians 1 talks about being adopted into God's family. And this says our nature before Christ is one of being a, a child of wrath. So sometimes we just don't take stock in the fact that like, we're not even, we're not on God's team. We're not, we're not neutral. We're on, the, we're on the opposite side of it. We are children deserving of God's righteous wrath. So, see, we have kind of, a, we could use a motto in, say, would just be true to yourself. Be yourself. And all that sounds like a nice motto until you real, realize that our nature leaves us spiritually dead. So we can be true to that all day long and it has grave consequences. All of us are living this way. Unflattering picture. The doctored picture, the Photoshop picture fades away. And this, this is who we are, estranged from God. Maybe estranged because we're doing our own efforts 
acting like we don't need him, or maybe we're estranged because of a thousand things that we are extremely not proud of. We're spiritually dead. Our lostness isn't this passing error. It's not just a lack of education. It's not as a result of getting dealt a bad hand in life. We're not going to climb out of that. That's what the first three verses tell us. You know, our culture doesn't do us any favors. Can I, can I speak frankly here? We live in a world that tells us that the only thing that matters is that we have a positive self-image. And any amount, any, any negativity, any negative thoughts, you, you, know, you got to get rid of those. And so for years, I mean, generations have been raised on, you just got to always think the best about yourself. And then you see where, where that goes. You see where that goes. So if we only have a category for ourselves as, you know, we're, we're great, we're wonderful, and we kind of throw away all negative thoughts, then, then a passage like this is somewhat jarring. However, life is pretty jarring when, we, when we've told ourselves it again and again, no, I am a pretty good person. I'm pretty much doing the best I can. I'm okay, and I just need to get rid of all negative thoughts. And, and yet, yet that doesn't seem to satisfy. I don't know that there's been any generation. This isn't like Curtis picking up stones and throwing it. I don't know that there's been any generation that has had more anxiety, that has been filled with more doubts, that is less comfortable with their identity, who they are, yet being told again and again and again to just have a positive self-image. It breaks down. And maybe the first three verses here hit us like a ton of bricks. Maybe it speaks, maybe it's a refreshing amount of truth that the problem is so severe that no amount of resolve, no positive vibes, no good intentions, no effort is going to be able to help us here. It's going to take God intervening. It's not enough. We just tell ourselves, well, feel better about yourself. It's not enough. You know, I, I actually haven't come with bad news today. Because the weight of this passage is weighted much more toward the good news. But the good news, we're not going to see it as good unless we understand clearly the picture of ourselves, which is, which is not flattering. And, and it's like all of this is awful. And then we get to this like two-word interruption that kind of changes this painful script. And that is in verse 4, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy. What's he going to do? What's he going to do with us who even our spiritual nature is corrupt? What will he do? Question for you today. What do you think the most loving thing God could do for you would be? If you were to think about it, what would be the most loving thing God might do for you? Before you like kind of pencil in an answer, I imagine you asking asking a three-year-old, what's the most loving thing I can do for you? I bet their answer is going to be like, you could give me ice cream. You could let me watch Dora until the cows come home. You could never tell me no. You could kind of remove bedtime. You can imagine that that person that is three may not, may not be able to process like what is best for them, how they could really get your love, your affection, what that would really mean. I wonder sometimes if we think, you know, God, 
you know what would really make me know that you love me? The most loving thing that I would really then know is if you just kind of make my life have minimal problems, then I'll know. Then I'll know you got my back. You're watching out for me. I'll really feel it then. Or if I could have like, I could, if life could be just a, a lot more comfortable than it is now, or if I could feel a lot less stressed, then I would know. Or if I had better friends or better family or that special someone, or if I had a better self-image, if I just, if you could make it so that I always felt good about myself, always, always. It'd be like asking the, the teenager, like, how could I make you feel more loved? And they might say, no curfew, smartphone, car keys. Next question. But what God does in these passages is show us exactly what we need, exactly how we need him to love us. There's an interesting pattern. If you're, if you're spiritually dead and estranged from God, you need much more than a little bit better self-image and all the toys you could ever play with. If you're spiritually dead, you need God to act in love. You need him to be a good, good father. And the rest of these verses, we realize that's exactly what he is. There's a pattern in these passages. So it starts off like this. It shows us that God works. God works in Christ. And then the second part of that pattern is we respond in faith. That's what the the remaining verses, we're going to see it a couple different times. God works. This is how he loves. He works in Christ. And then we respond in faith. So verse 4 says, because God loves us so much, it says he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive with Christ. So if the worst news is that we were spiritually dead, then the best news is that now we are spiritually alive. And everything that contributed to our spiritual death has been dealt with. Like the sins, yeah, they've been dealt with. The trespasses, they've been dealt with. They were killing you. They killed you spiritually. Oh, that's been dealt with. You've now been made alive. And it's, the word is like, you've been co-made alive. So, so just like Jesus has, you're, you're the co-beneficiary of that. Jesus was made alive. You're alive. You have new life. You have a new purpose. This took grace. By grace, you've been saved. And he says, not only have you been made alive, but you've been raised up. So you've been co-raised up. You've been raised up together with Christ. So just as Christ was raised from the dead, you've been raised out of this environment, this spiritual environment that's toxic. You're actually in a, a different realm that isn't going to kill you, but it's going to bring you life. He has raised you up. You have victory over sin, victory over futility. By grace, you've been saved says we've been not just co-made alive and co-raised up with Christ. We've been co-seated with him. So just like Christ, we talk about him going to the Father and sitting at the Father's right hand. The, the right hand is the place of authority. So Jesus has authority. He's Lord. He tells people what to do and they do it. And we're seated with him. That means just 
is he's the master and we are seated with him. That means other things are not the master of our life. So that means my greed, my materialism is not the master of my life. It means the anxiety, my doubts, that's not the master of my life. Christ is the Lord. Christ is Lord over, over my thoughts. Christ is Lord over my desires. I am who God says I am. He's Lord over my identity. I don't have to wallow in sin and shame and guilt because I'm co-seated with Christ. And, and so you want to know what it looks like when God loves you richly, when God shows mercy on you? It may not be giving you a thousand things you thought you wanted, but it's taking care of exactly, exactly what you needed for eternity to restore that relationship. And God's worked all this out. He did for us what we could not what we could not do for ourselves and what we certainly did not deserve. There's words in here, and one of the reasons why it's my favorite passage is that there's words like mercy and love and grace and kindness. And Paul uses, I don't know if he's pulling out the ancient thesaurus, just wanting to make sure he covers all the, all the possible things that we could think of it, in ways of showing us love and showing us compassion, mercy and grace and kindness and love. These aren't just cheap words, throwaway words. It, it's a bloody cross that shows us that these are, these are the things that God has for us, that he, he loves you. That you may come in here feeling worthless, but, but these are God's words of hope and life. But God... And then fill in mercy and love and grace and kindness. It's interesting, like the dimensions of all these. So, verse 4, it says that God shows mercy, but he's actually rich in mercy. Then it talks about his love, but it says he has great love. It's almost like this is not the average size. This is the, the Costco dimensions of things. They're more than necessary. It's not as if a hundred people get to be kind of in the line for the benefits and when all those run out, we're sorry, maybe come again. It's that there's an inexhaustible supply. It's the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's massive quantities. It's enough for all of us. And you've got friends and it's enough for them. And you've got family members and it's enough for them. And there will be another generation that will follow us should Jesus not come back. And it'll be enough for them. God is rich. And and it'll be enough for that person even right now that you think is way beyond hope, way beyond help because they've so messed up their lives. There is a richness and there's a greatness and there's an immeasurable nature of the riches of his grace. And none of this has been earned. I love verse 8 and verse 9. I mean, once again... Like, how many ways does Paul have to say this? So he says, this is not your own doing. It is a gift. It's not a result of works, so that nobody should boast about it. I mean, how how many different ways does he need to say that this is just totally undeserved? See, we have clear categories in our mind. We learn them early, the difference between a birthday present and a paycheck. This isn't that hard for us. And if we're understanding where God's grace comes to us, Yeah, it's not in the paycheck. It's not what we've earned. It's totally in the gift category. What an amazing thing. This is grace. Present experience of salvation. By grace, you have been saved. So right now, you've been saved. And then, it has lingering results. It continues on. This is all because of but God. So, Remember the pattern. The pattern says God works in Christ and we respond in faith. 
We respond in faith by believing. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Through faith in what Jesus has done. Through faith in what God has done for us in Christ. And it'd be enough to just kind of close out thinking about God's grace for us. But that isn't where Paul closes the thought because if you keep reading in verse 10, there's, it, it keeps pushing a little bit more. It's, it says God, God's not done working. God's not done shaping. God's not done creating. It says, for we, we who once were the objects of God's wrath, right, and, and deservedly so, Now God is at work again in Christ. God is taking the person who previously had been consumed by sin, headed to death, and now he's made them his masterpiece. We are his workmanship. We are his creation, created. And where did all this take place? Once again, it's in Christ, in Jesus. God is doing something new in our lives. This forms our identity. This is why God made you, and this is why God has remade you. So that you might have good works that he's prepared already for you. And we respond. We respond in faith. We really respond in faithfulness, don't we? It says we walk in them. God lays out this path. And it's not just like Mother Teresa who is filled with good works. It's not just the the people who work for a church or a nonprofit that are filled with good works. So I, I look out at a congregation that God has already ordained that there would be good works that you're going to walk in. Some of them are going to be this week. You're going to care for someone that other people forget. You're going to be a friend to someone who needs it. You're going to do your job, and by doing your job well, you're going to serve other people. You're going to show compassion as a senior adult. You're going to be a kind student that God's ordained for you to walk in this way. You're going to juggle a thousand things. You're going to go to work to get a paycheck, to serve others and to care for others. You're you're going to walk in all these good works and, and some of them might happen at a church and most of them will not. But all of us, all of us who have experienced this amazing love of God have, have now been like set free to do good works. We're not spiritually dead. We've been made alive. This is one of those passages that just really, really forces us to think. In all honesty, I mean, either Paul is right in giving us our unflattering picture and then what God has done, or he's just making stuff up. And really, we're okay anyway. But I hope you see today. I hope you have a deeper appreciation for what we would be without Christ. And in a moment when we sing how deep the Father's love for us. That you feel that. And yet what I'm positive is there are those in this room who you've never had that personal encounter with Jesus Christ who loves you. And I'm not saying you haven't been to church. I'm just saying it's never been that personal to you. And maybe you've been thinking about it. Maybe something has triggered in your thought, like I, I, I need more. I, I can't just live life on my own. And, and I, I, I need what you talked about, Curtis. I need that today in my life. While you could reject the one true God, run life your own way with messy results and a consequence that means you're eternally separated from him, there's mercy today. You can rely on God's grace, God's kindness in Jesus. You can submit to him and God begins to go on 
at work in your life. Sometimes you need words to voice like your cry to the Lord. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I, I really, I don't know where God might be working. But if you say, I, I don't know where I'd start in coming back to the Lord or coming back to God or believing or trusting, I do want to give you a prayer to say there's nothing magical about the prayer. But I want to give you words that you could say to God. If you feel like right now he has just made it unmistakably clear that Christ loves you and that Christ has worked to save you and you want to call out to him, you might pray something like this, Dear God, I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you, guilty of ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Maybe you pray, thank you, God, for sending your son to die for me that I might be forgiven. Thank you for the, that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Lord, forgive me and change me that I could live with Jesus as my savior and my ruler. Maybe those are the words on your heart as you're praying today. I'd encourage you not to leave without talking to someone about it. There'll be lots of people available after the service, maybe even the person that brought you, that just wanted you to hear more about what Jesus has done, what God's grace can do. Father, would you draw hearts even in this moment that we might appreciate more fully than we've appreciated in a long time your grace Help us see the picture of of who we would have been apart from you and who we are in Christ. And if if you're calling those that need to put their faith in you, pray they would make that known, that they wouldn't hide that. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your love for us. We celebrate that. In Christ's name, amen.